good. Good morning, Pentecostal Tabernacle. How are you doing? Good. Hey, if you're in the chat online, let me know how you're doing. Give me a thumbs up or whatever emoji you want to use. And hey, you know, in the audience, I can't see your face because of your mask, so let me know. Are you thumbs up? Thumbs down? Oh, I got a lot of thumbs up. Excellent, excellent. I'm going to give you a thumbs up from the stage as well because I am excited to be here this morning. Uh, before I begin, I wanted to just acknowledge Bishop Brian and Lady Carmen. Uh, as you heard, Bishop is uh, preaching at First Church, and so uh, I have the honor of speaking here this morning. Uh, I just wanted to say, I know Bishop and Lady will probably watch this later on uh, online, so Bishop and Lady Carmen, thank you so much for the honor to speak, and also um, uh, Deidre, Evan, and Mia, and I just wanted to send you all of our love and our blessings to you this Christmas season, so lots of love to you guys. We love you. Um, yeah. Well, it is the Christmas season, and traditionally during the Christmas season, uh, we're in the liturgical season of Advent here in the church, and usually the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, we talk about the four themes of Advent, which are hope, peace, joy, and love. And I, I'm probably a week off, but I just had this burden in my heart that I think God really wanted me to talk about peace today, the theme of peace. And so today we will be talking about peace. So let me first ask you, how many of you guys know what Nextdoor is? It's a website, an app. How many of you guys here are on Nextdoor? So a few of you, all right, so those of you who don't know, Nextdoor is this great app that allows you to connect with your neighbors uh, online, in this online community, where you can talk and engage in different topics, uh, issues of local concern. You know, you can ask people, hey, you know, I'm looking for a dentist or a plumber, or you can try to buy and sell you things. It's, it's great. My favorite thing about Nextdoor is I love the pictures and the videos of animals that are posted on Nextdoor, right? And so um, I love this one video of this coyote roaming the streets of North Cambridge. That was pretty cool. Uh, I loved seeing, there was this one video of this turkey, and the turkey has this leg caught in the slats of the fence, and this animal control person has these big gloves and trying to rescue the, the turkey. That was cool. But my favorite one was this hawk, and this hawk had killed a squirrel, right? <laughs> and so it was sitting on this bench eating the squirrel, and like half the people next to her were like, oh, that's the most disgusting thing I've ever seen. And the other half were like, oh, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. It was awesome. I loved it. And so I really enjoy Nextdoor. Unfortunately, um, it really has, like everything else these days, especially things that are online, it's really kind of devolved, right? Especially around particular really hot topic issues. And so it's a, it's a, it's a hotbed of conflict, right? And it's like really polarized. People are just mudslinging you know, really speaking, uh, you know, throwing insults at each other as opposed to really trying to, try to dialogue about something. And so uh, the latest thing is, uh, that has got everyone up in a tizzy is uh, these um, 
protected bike lanes, right? <laughs> so, so maybe me just saying that has, has triggered you, <laughs> and you might feel really strongly about this one way or the other. So, you know, you've got one side, the environmentalist and the pro-bicyclist, and they're, they're all concerned because they want, they want to reduce carbon emission, and they want, you know, protected bike lanes so that bicyclists can be safe. And then on the other side, you've got people who have to drive for one reason or the other, and their life now is made, made very difficult because they can't park, you know, traffic has gotten worse. And they're also, in parts of Cambridge, they've, they've now removed a lane and put like a dedicated bus lane. And so it's been really difficult for some people to just go a block without it taking a half an hour to go a block. So you can see there's people on both sides who feel very, very strongly about this issue, right? And, um, and it's gotten so bad that uh, it just seems like people aren't even bothering to listen to the other side, right? It's just insults and, uh, and assuming the worst of the other person. It's gotten so bad. And that's really been heavy on my heart. And I think to myself, wow, this is over bike lanes, right? <laughs> I mean, I don't mean to trivialize it, right? I, I understand the issue is important, and I'm a bicyclist too. I love to bike all over Cambridge, but I also need to drive. So I understand both sides. So I'm not meaning to minimize it. But I think to myself, gosh, if we can't even figure out how to uh, solve this problem, or even at a minimum, how to talk civilly to each other as we're trying to figure out a solution here, then how in the world are we going to be able to tackle even bigger issues with, I think, even higher stakes or that are more controversial, like, you know, the, the whole argument around vaccinations right now, or, man, should we even be teaching that racism exists in schools? Or, or how about, you know, uh, all over the world right now, there's conflicts and wars and civil wars happening. I mean, Look at what's happening in Ethiopia in the Tigray province, right? There's just human atrocities happening there. And if we can't even figure out how to deal with the small stuff, then how in the world are we going to be able to tackle the bigger stuff? And it just seems like we're in this moment of time right now, right, <clears throat> where everything just seems so hyper-polarized. And people are just so less willing to work with each other, let alone even just talk civilly with each other about these issues, right? And we see this not only with our politicians, but it's actually happening, right, in our own homes, with our family members, with our friends, with our coworkers, right? We're all kind of dealing with this right now. And so all this conflict has gotten worse, I feel like, over the past couple years. And it's really weighed heavy on my heart. And so that's why this morning I wanted to talk about peace. Now, if it's any consolation, it probably isn't. <laughs> you know, King Solomon did say 2000, you know, that there's nothing new under the sun, right? And so, unfortunately, um, you know, when God came to earth in the form of a baby boy born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, um, unfortunately, the world was filled with just as much conflict and violence, right, and injustice as it is today, unfortunately. So, um, so I'm going to take a look at the, the Christmas story, the Jesus' birth, and I'd love for you to follow along with me, and let's jump right in here. So uh, this is in Luke chapter 2. This is what Luke says. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up to the town of Nazareth in Galilee and to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. 
and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in claws and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So this is the same passage that uh, Bishop preached on last week. But for me today, I wanted to spend a little more time talking about the historical, the political context in which Jesus was born. And I want to do this because I really want you to understand that when Jesus was born in this time, there, it was not good. There was a lot of injustice, a lot of conflict, a lot of violence that Jesus was born into. So we learn at the beginning of this passage that Jesus is born under the rule of Caesar Augustus. And Caesar is known as Rome's greatest ruler, right? So uh, under Caesar Augustus, Rome's empire is fully extended, right, to uh, all of Western Europe, right? And then Asia Minor, Middle East, uh, North Africa. So Rome has really expanded, expanded its empire. And Augustus has ended years of civil war, and he's established what's known as Pax Romana, Roman peace. And this is a period of peace and stability which lasts 200 years, which quite, is quite unprecedented uh, back then. And so that's great. Uh, unfortunately, this comes at a cost, right? This peace comes because Caesar Augustus is this real brutal, oppressive ruler, right? The reason he has risen to power is because he's crushed all the opposition, ended all the wars, ended all the civil wars. He's transitioned the government from a republic fully, at this point, to an empire, right? <laughs> he is the ruler of this empire, like Darth Vader. <laughs> and he has all the power. The Senate is really a puppet Senate. It's really more like an advisory group at this point. And he has oppressed like 90% of the people living in the Roman Empire, right? And people are toiling away while the rich just keep getting richer and the powerful keep getting more powerful in the capital in Rome. And uh, a big part of this oppression is this taxation system, right? So every five years, they have to do a census. And so every man is required to go to his hometown where he's born, bring his family there to be counted so that Caesar knows how much to collect in taxes, right? And this is why Joseph has to go to, um, to Bethlehem because this is where the town where he was born. And uh, so he brings Mary. And this is not the greatest time to go because Mary is about to give birth to Jesus. Um, now, some scholars believe that in Roman times, Rome would tax its people up to 50 to 60 percent of everything that they owned. So that was a huge amount. And of course, most people back then were peasants. They, they, uh, they didn't have money, but they had crops and livestock. So, so every five years, the census was taken, and half or more than half of everything they owned was given to Rome. And I'm sure that was not redistributed back to them, right? Most of it was concentrated back in the capital in Rome where I said the rich got richer and the powerful got more powerful. And so, you know, we know that Joseph is a carpenter. Uh, it says that in scripture. So he's some type of carpenter or craftsman. So we know that Joseph is not a wealthy person, doesn't have a lot of money. And so it's in this relatively poor Jewish family living under Roman rule in the Roman Empire that Jesus is born, right? And as soon as Jesus is born, he immediately undergoes a near-death experience, right? Let's remember, uh, <clears throat> uh, 
uh, in this time, uh, Rome had appointed a ruler over the Jews. His name was King Herod, and he was called the King of the Jews. Now, Herod discovers that uh, this Jesus is born and that people are calling this Jesus the king of the Jews. <laughs> so how can this be if I'm the king of the Jews, right? And so he, scripture says, is very disturbed by this news. And so disturbed that he wants to kill Jesus. And so he orders all the uh, boys under the age of two to be murdered, executed, right? And so this really gruesome, bloody event in history is oftentimes called the massacre of the innocents. So it's this really sad, brutal, violent period of time. Fortunately, Jesus is able to escape, right? Because as we remember, an angel comes to Joseph, tells them to flee to Egypt until it's safe to come back. Uh, so Jesus is safe, but unfortunately there is a massacre that happens. And I say all this just to drive home the point that when Jesus was born, the world was a very brutal, violent, oppressive, unjust place to be living, particularly as a Jew. Now the Jews, for thousands of years, have heard of this prophecy, right? This coming Messiah, the Savior, the Savior who is going to deliver, deliver the Jewish people from oppression, right? And so, of course, given their circumstances, living under Roman rule, uh, they put all their hope and faith that this Jesus would be this Messiah, the Savior, that would deliver his people, right, from... ...to... ...the Jews... What, uh, what Herod didn't know, what, what we probably wouldn't have known if we were living back then, is that wasn't God's plan. That wasn't God's plan to overthrow the power structure, to overthrow Rome, right? Jesus did not come to overthrow the Roman Empire. Because in prophecy, Jesus is not only known as the king of the Jews, but he's also known as the prince of peace. So, in uh, the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is a prophet who prophesies about Jesus 750 years before Jesus is born. And that's, that's amazing when you think about the fact that there were many prophecies that were told about Jesus by several prophets. Uh, one of them is Isaiah. And what's amazing is they all come true. And what Isaiah says in Isaiah 9, he says this. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders... And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So, I think it's important to realize that <laughs> peace, as the world thinks of it, is probably very different than peace as the way God thinks of it, right? I mean, Pax Romana was a period of peace and stability, right? Where there wasn't relatively any fighting for 200 years. That's true. But of course, this came at the cost of brutal oppression, right? And, uh, and for, for me, that doesn't feel like peace. It just feels like it's missing the mark, right? And so, yes, uh, 
peace might mean the absence of conflict or violence, maybe a ceasefire, right? But it's incomplete to me, right? So how does God define peace? Well, in, uh, in, this, um, in Isaiah, this word that Isaiah uses for peace is the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom. And you've probably heard this word. It, you know, you think of it as peace. You know, Jews use it as a greeting for each other. But this word shalom actually has a lot of really deep and profound and layered meaning. It means wholeness. It means uh, harmony. It means restoration. To be in right relationship with God, right relationship with his creation, right relationship with each other. And that's a very different way of thinking about peace than the world thinks about peace. Um, you know, many years ago, I was, I was walking by Leslie College, and there was an art gallery, so I, I stopped in uh, to take a look, and there was a piece of art, and I was really immediately drawn to it. And on this piece of art, at the top, it said in big words, social justice. And there was a picture of a lamb with blood <laughs> in its mouth, and it was standing on top of a dead lion, right? And so to this artist, what social justice meant was the powerless overthrowing the powerful, right? The lamb, the powerless, overthrowing the lion, the powerful, right? And that was this artist's idea of social justice. And of course, this was a play on uh, traditional religious imagery, right? Because the traditional religious image is the lion lying down next to the lamb. And that symbolizes the peace that will come when Jesus is here. When Jesus is here, the powerful won't overthrow the powerless, right? And vice versa. But the powerful, the lion, will lie down in harmony, in right relationship, in shalom, right, with the lamb. And so um, this, these are two very different ways of thinking about peace. And I was actually reminded of this as I was preparing my sermon. And then Dr. Marion had preached two weeks ago. And she had talked about right now, you know, the way the world is thinking about justice just isn't the way that God should be, thinks about justice, right? And she was talking about cancel culture and how it just seemed like our society right now is more interested in retribution and revenge, right, than it is in restoration and redemption, right? Our world is more focused on retribution and revenge, right? But what if Jesus is not asking us to seek retribution and revenge, but Jesus is asking us to seek shalom? Shalom, right? So in the Sermon on the Mount, this is what Jesus tells us. The Sermon on the Mount actually is, is um, I think, Jesus' greatest sermon. And it's this amazing sermon. And in it, he says... One thing he says that I want to focus on, he says in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, You've heard what it said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. So this idea of eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth is something that all the Jews, as he was saying that, all the Jews would have got what he meant. Because this was a part of the Old Testament law in Exodus. We find it. And, uh, and so the Jews would understand this was a guiding principle that Jews uh, would, would use to deal with conflict, you know, for thousands of years. And, uh, and the reason why 
is because human nature is funny, right? Because the way our human nature is that we are wired for reciprocity, <laughs> right? So when someone does something nice to us, we want to return the favor in kind. So I go out to lunch with a friend. They take me out to Chipotle's. I love Chipotle's. That's fantastic. So I say, hey, next time we go out, I'm going to treat you, right? That's the way it works. It just feels like it's nice and, uh, and balanced. I'm not thinking to myself, hey, let's go out. I'm going to take you to the Four Seasons Hotel. No, I'm not thinking that. I'm thinking Chipotle. Chipotle's nice, right? Um, but here's the thing. When someone does the opposite, when someone hurts us, we don't just want to do the same thing in return. We want to do more, right? We want to increase it. So if someone hits us, we want to hit him twice. If someone is mean and says something really mean to us, we want to lash out and say something even meaner, right? That's what we want to do. Um, the other day, I was driving the kids to work and school, and it was 7.30 in the morning, the Jamaica Way, windy road, right? And all of a sudden, these two cars come tearing past us from behind. And they're just weaving in and out of traffic. And on the Jamaica Way, that's really scary. And I thought to myself, oh, wow, they're, they're drag racing. And then I thought, wait, who drag races at 7.30 in the morning? <laughs> they're not drag racing. The first guy had done something to make the second guy really angry. And so that second guy was chasing. And I don't even know what the guy was trying to do, but he was aggressively driving and trying to chase this person, right? And I just turned to the kids and I said, whoa, these guys, <laughs> this guy does not know how to let it go, right? And so this is exactly the kind of behavior that eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth was meant to address, right? Because the whole point was that it was meant to try to make sure that violence, offenses didn't escalate, right? And even in the court of law, if someone was tried, that the punishment would not uh, overcompensate, right? You didn't want to overpunish someone, right? You wanted to make sure that the punishment fit the crime, right? And so that was what eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth was meant to be. But in this passage in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying, okay, you know how it says eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Everyone understands that. And he says, now I want to flip it around. I want to change everything, right? And I want you to think about something different. And he says, if someone hits you across the right cheek, I want you to turn the other cheek also. And now, maybe to us, that doesn't sound that bad. But this example that Jesus uses is so salacious. It's so extreme that people would have just been shocked. And the reason why is, I, I actually learned this, is that in ancient Near Eastern culture, to be hit across the right cheek was actually one of the most grievous insults that you could give another person. It was the most disrespectful, dishonoring thing that you could do to put another person down. I mean, it was so bad that it was like a criminal offense and you could get prosecuted under Jewish law. It was so bad that the Romans would also prosecute you under Roman law. It was that bad. It was a really bad thing to do. And so what Jesus is saying is that if someone does the worst possible imaginable thing to disrespect you, you're supposed to just let him do it again, right? <laughs> Why in the world would Jesus say that? Why in the world would Jesus tell us to do that? Does Jesus not care about justice? Does Jesus just want the powerful and the evil person to just, you know, bowl over the weak and the powerless? Does Jesus not want us to defend ourselves, right? 
And so I, I really struggled with this passage. Uh, in fact, the whole Sermon on the Mount is actually really hard because it is just like impossible uh, thing after impossible thing that Jesus asks us to do. But this particular passage, I remember even thinking years ago, um, just really wrestling with this as I was debating with someone in college. So I've been wrestling with this for many years. And I, I really just brought it to God, and I've been thinking and praying about this. And I feel like this is what God has kind of downloaded to me. I, I don't think Jesus is necessarily saying that um, we shouldn't defend ourselves if we're attacked. He's not saying that we shouldn't confront injustice when we see it. He's not saying that we shouldn't face down evil when we see it. I just don't think he's saying that because it's just, it wouldn't be consistent with Scripture in other parts of the Bible. But also Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. So Jesus isn't necessarily saying, throw it all out, right? And that's not what Jesus is saying. But what Jesus is saying, I think, is he wants us to have a mindset change, a heart change, right? Because right now, the way that we're thinking about conflict the way our mindset is, the way our heart is, it's, it's very limited. It's a, it's a very small, limited way of thinking about the world. And it's really about tit for tat, right? You do this, I do that. You do this, I do that, right? And what God is saying is he wants us to open our heart. He wants us to open our hands. He wants us to embrace this mindset of extravagant grace, extravagant grace. Amen? <laughs> now that sounds great, but why in the world would we want to do that, right? <laughs> why would we do that? Why would we want to embrace extravagant grace? <clears throat> because by right, we should at least be able to get even, right? Why would we want to do that? Why would we do that? Well, remember, the first conflict in humanity was not between people. It was actually between us and God. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve lived in perfect harmony with God, right? They, were, they had it made. They could eat whatever they wanted to eat. <laughs> they had dominion and care over creation, right? God would walk into the garden. He'd say, hey, what's up? And they'd go, hey, what's up, God, right? And they had each other. It was awesome. It was great, right? You know, in... The, um, the Native Americans have this translation of the Bible called the First Nations Translation. And in that translation, the, um, the word for the Garden of Eden is the Garden of Beauty and Harmony. I love that, right? Beauty and Harmony. Because doesn't that just evoke this idea of shalom, right? So Adam and Eve lived in shalom, in perfect harmony, in right relationship with God, with creation, and with each other, right? But of course, Adam and Eve, they decide they want to do their own thing. They disobey God. They eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? And so they break away. They break that shalom that they have with God. And so God, of course, in his holiness, has to send Adam and Eve outside of the Garden of Eden. And they have to live with the consequence of their sin for generations. But fortunately, God doesn't just leave it there. He wants to initiate the peace process. He wants to reach out, right? He wants to offer us restoration. And he does that by sending Jesus, right? Jesus came to 
uh, be born as God among us, to, be, uh, to die on the cross for our sins so that we might be uh, in relationship with God. He took our place with, that, with the death on the cross so that we could experience shalom again with God, right? That's a beautiful thing, right? And so Jesus, remember, when he came, he experienced um, slander, violence, right? Even before being crucified on the cross, I'm sure the things that he experienced were far worse than just getting hit across the cheek, right? And so, uh, but God and his extravagant grace, you know, overlooked that, right? Amen? And so, Jesus, you know, if you think about it, Jesus was God in the flesh. And he could have come as anyone, right? Jesus could have come as that lion, right? He could have come as that lion to overthrow Herod, to overthrow the the Roman Empire, right? But instead, Jesus came as the lamb. He came as the lamb to be sacrificed. So it's in our own restored relationship with God that out of our gratitude and joy that we just are compelled, right, to also want to offer that same shalom to others as God wants us to do, right? And so... Um, um, and so... <clears throat> We know that when we were, um, that we were like the aggressor in the Garden of Eden, right? We slapped God across the right cheek in the Garden of Eden, right? But God forgave us, and he offered us restoration and redemption, right? So how can we not also offer that same grace and mercy to others? because we've received it so abundantly. And I think that's why in another part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this. He says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Maybe sometimes I think it should be called, it should be switched and said, we are called the children of God because we are peacemakers. And the reason why I think that is because I don't think we really can understand what it is to be a peacemaker, right? To really seek shalom, unless we have received that same shalom as a child of God, our Father, right? Sometimes I feel like we need to receive it before we know how to give it, right? And so, this Christmas season, I, I want us all to really reflect on the birth of Jesus as the Prince of Peace. And so I want us to think about this one question. Usually I've got a bunch of tips, but today is one question. When you're in conflict, what would it look like to cultivate a mindset of extravagant grace? What would it look like to cultivate a mindset of extravagant grace? So whether you've gotten into a fight with a, a friend, a coworker, a spouse, whatever it is, what would it look like to cultivate a mindset of extravagant grace? How would we engage in that conflict in a way that tried to honor the relationship over trying to get even, 
or trying to win, right, that argument. How would we approach trying to engage with people who we disagree with? Maybe about bike lanes, <laughs> right? Or controversial topics, politics. How do we engage in those conversations? How would we advocate for peace and justice at a broader level, right? And of course, when I think about those things, I think about all the examples throughout history where real change happened because people embraced this mindset of extravagant grace, right? So we just think about Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., who practiced nonviolent uh, resistance. Or in South Africa, right, when apartheid was uh, dismantled, when power went back from the whites to the blacks, President Nelson Mandela didn't just throw everyone into jail, right? They set up the Truth and Reconciliation Commission because they weren't interested in retribution, revenge. They were interested in restored relationship. How do we reunify South Africa? Bishop uh, Desmond Tutu, who uh, was an anti-apartheid activist at the time, uh, this is what he said. He said, forgiving is not forgetting. Forgiving is not forgetting, right? So it's not just about, I'm just going to forget it, I'm going to turn the other cheek. That's not what forgiving is. It's actually remembering. Remembering and not using your right to hit back, right? <clears throat> Turning the other cheek. It's a second chance for a new beginning. And the remembering part is particularly important, especially if you don't want to repeat what happened. So, let me end by just telling you the story. I, um, some of you know that I work for this great private Christian school called Boston Trinity Academy. We love it. And um, one of the things that I've been doing uh, over these uh, past many years is I've been raising money. And I've been helping to oversee the construction of a gym. And we're, whole, we're doing the whole entire front parking lot. Beautiful landscaping. It's going to be nice. Um, and as part of the process, you have to go through uh, this neighborhood approval process in order to get the permits. You know, if the neighbors don't like your project, they can really stall the project. And so I've done a bunch of construction projects in the past, and I know that it can be quite a contentious process because there's always someone who feels like this project that you're doing is going to negatively impact them, and maybe rightfully so, because it really will uh, hurt them. And oftentimes it's also just that People are afraid of change, or it might be the not-in-my-backyard kind of mentality. Whatever it might be, it's going to be a contentious process, right? And so uh, for us, that was the case. So the, the headmaster's name is Frank. So Frank and I, uh, we had set up and went to uh, several uh, neighborhood meetings over the course of the year. And over the course of the year, there was this one guy, and he kept coming to all the meetings to talk, uh, to, to be in opposition to our project. And then he would rile everyone up in the meeting against us. And I was like, oh, man. <clears throat> and so his biggest concern was that somehow uh, we would be making traffic unsafe in the neighborhood with our change. And we weren't bringing any traffic in. We had done a traffic study. In fact, we were doing traffic calming measures that weren't even there to make sure that traffic would be safer. We even changed the plans just to see if that would uh, appease him. And it just seemed like everything we said or did, nothing was going to work out. This guy just wanted to stop the project. And so this guy actually knew the mayor. <laughs> and so he called the mayor's office, and the mayor's office calls us and says, you got to work it out. 
got to work it out with this neighborhood and then before you can get your permits. So we have this um, city councilor and his rep that we were working closely with on the project. And the rep says, okay, this is your plan. This is your strategy for how you get through the neighborhood process. And he told us the strategy. And it just, it didn't feel right to us. And it wasn't that he was telling us to do anything wrong or unethical, but it just felt like it was a very us versus them mentality. Just get it through, right? And it felt like that wasn't the neighborly thing to do. And I don't blame this guy for saying that because he had done a lot of projects, so he dealt with a lot of really difficult neighbors. In fact, he, had, he said that he had gotten death threats in the past because people were really upset, which is crazy to think about and to get a death threat over some project, but he got death threats, right? And so I, I totally understood what he was saying, but we felt like we had to try to figure out how to work it out. So we set up this meeting. We have no idea what's going to happen, but we go, you know what? We're just going to try. And so we have this meeting, and it goes terribly. It's just awful. <laughs> and he's, he's, he's up in arms again. He's whipped up. It's this mob mentality. <laughs> Everyone is against us. And the meeting's over, and we're just sort of informally talking now the, about the meeting. Now, you have to know that in the other room, we've got our team. And the team is praying fervently. They're praying fervently that this guy's heart would change <laughs> and that the situation would change. We could get our permits, right? <laughs> and so they're praying, and we're talking with this guy, and all of a sudden, his tone changes. And he, he saw all of a sudden, you know, it's like something has shifted in his attitude. And we start just talking about other things and about life. And, and uh, we say at the end, you know what, let's have lunch together. Let's just try to figure this out. He says, okay. So we go and have lunch. And we're sitting down and eating lunch. And he says, this is what happened. Early on that day when we had that meeting, I was so upset. I went to work, and I have a coworker who's a good friend, and I was complaining to him about this project, and I was saying, that school, Boston Treaty Academy, is awful, and that Frank, he is the most untrustworthy person. I hate him so much. He's always saying things. I know he's lying. And the guy just stops him and says, wait a second. I know Frank, <laughs> and I actually know that school, and I think you have it all wrong because that's not the Frank I know. And I think you've misjudged him, and you should give him another chance. And so uh, he really respected his friend, and he was thinking about that while they were in the meeting. We were in the meeting, and, and all of a sudden, it just kind of came to him, and that's kind of the turning point that happened for him. And um, it turns out, you know, Frank is, um, you know, he's an educator. He's been an educator for 40 years. He's going to retire this year. And, uh, and so he's had lots of students, and this guy, this coworker, was a former student of his. <laughs> in fact, he was uh, the um, captain of the football team, and Frank was the head football coach of the school. And so they knew each other very well. And so how's that for a God, you know, a God connection, right? <clears throat> so, <clears throat> so we end up meeting for three hours, and we're not even talking about the project. We're just talking about life, about his family, you know, about everything. I mean, at the end, he's like, yeah, you know, when my kids get older, I might think about Boston Trinity Academy for my own kids. <laughs> I mean, he lives right across the street. Why not, right? And he said at the end, you know what? Everything's cool. I had gotten in my mind that you were like every single other developer out there and that you were politically connected. You were just going to do what you are going to do. He didn't care about the neighbors. You were going to just do whatever you wanted to do and it didn't really matter what the neighbors said. And I was just sick of that because I've just been to too many of these meetings. And so I was going to do everything I could to stop you because I was just sick and tired of developers like you. 
But then I realized you aren't politically connected. <laughs> you don't know anyone. <laughs> and so, and that's not you, right? That you seem very sincere and you want to work together. And I trust that now. <clears throat> so we're going to work together. And so we told our, our rep that. We said, you know what? This is what happened. He said, I've never heard of that. I've never heard of any group who would, who would go to that much work to get approval. I mean, you didn't even have to do that much, and you probably could have gotten the approval, right? <laughs> you know? And he said, that's unbelievable. But I just thought, what a validation, right? What a validation, especially as a Christian school, right? That we would go that extra mile in order to be in right relationship with our neighbor, right? <laughs> Isn't that amazing? So... <laughs> So what I learned is that shalom, right, it takes a lot of time. <laughs> it takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of patience. And I'm not saying it's going to work all the time, right, but it's worth pressing into to the best of our ability to really try to have that mindset of extravagant grace because we received it so abundantly ourselves, right? And so this Christmas... As we celebrate the birth of Jesus, God with us, Emmanuel, the Prince of Peace, let us embrace shalom, right? Let us seek to be in right relationship with God, with his creation, and with each other. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let, me, let me pray for us. God... We thank you, Lord, for the birth of your son, because through Jesus, we might know hope, peace, joy, and love, God. And we pray, God, that you would help us to connect more deeply with your shalom, God, with your shalom. Let us be in right relationship with you Father God, let us be in right relationship with your creation. Let us be in right relationship with each other, Lord. And so I pray this Christmas season, let us receive that shalom abundantly so that we may pass it on to the world. Right, Lord? So please, God, Holy Spirit, Lord, Holy Spirit, come. Come, Lord. Come and bless us with shalom and bless us with your Holy Spirit to be able to bring shalom to our world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Amen. Thank you so much, Danny. I just want to take a moment and ask, if you find that you are at odds with God, with others, if you feel like your life is embattled and you but you would want to experience that extravagant grace from the Prince of Peace this day. I'm just going to ask if you would pray with me. And I'm going to, so that 
whoever you may be, you may also know that you're not alone. And I'm going to ask that everybody would pray this prayer with me. Heavenly Father, our hearts are troubled. We feel at odds with you. Though we may have struck out at you, lashed out at you because of the circumstances of our lives, we're now at the point where we desire your son, the, the Prince of Peace, to be a part of our lives. We want him to bring his shalom, his harmony, his wholeness, his restoration into our life. So Father, I invite you I invite your word, your son Jesus. I invite your Holy Spirit to come into my life. Help me so that I can experience that extravagant grace. Help me so that your shalom can be something that I experience daily. Amen. If you're, whether you're online or you're here with me in the sanctuary, if you've prayed that prayer and you desire the Lord Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, to be a part of your life, if you're online, put it in the chat and say, I've invited the Prince of Peace into my life. If you're here, on your way out, if you would indicate that to one of our welcome team, they'd be glad to share some additional information for you, with you. So at this time, I'm going to pronounce the Lord's blessings over us. So as we're accustomed to doing. Bless you. And protect you. Look after you, shield you, defend you, and take care of you. May the Lord make his face to shine, grin, beam, and show his pleasure on you. And may the Lord be gracious, kind-hearted, pleasant, and compassionate to you. 
may the Lord show you his favor that will promote you, appreciate you, support you, and side with you as you side with him. And finally, may the Lord give you his shalom, his peace, his harmony, his calmness, his composure, his prosperity, his success, and remove anything that causes agitation or discord with his divine purpose and destiny for your life. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, let everybody say, I receive those blessings. Amen. Be blessed.